Welcome to Permaculture Tonight. We have an amazing lineup for tonight's show. Neil Speckman, who is working over in Saudi Arabia, is going to be sharing with us. Lori Neverman of CommonSenseHome.com. Her Common Sense Homesteading blog about using sound judgment to be more self-reliant. Will be joining us to talk about our permaculture home makeover. And my fellow Jeff Lawton Online Permaculture Design Course alumni, Ray Hodgson, is talking with us about life after the PDC. First up, we have an update on the Permaculture Student One, the first volume of the 6th through 12th grade public and homeschool permaculture curriculum I'm working on. Our stretch goals are nearly fulfilled as Wayne Fleming, our permaculture illustrator, colors in his drawings. He's nearly two-thirds done with that process, so it, we're close. We're really, really close. Uh, I don't know how long exactly. Um, once that is done, we can format and then ship to me and then I can ship it to everyone who uh, backed the Kickstarter and then I can, after that, I can send the books to Amazon and then they'll have it available on Amazon for everyone to order. And I'll keep everyone posted online on the permaculturestudent.com about that. Alright, now for the farm update. Alright, so today I cut not like huge soils. What I'm doing is I'm finding the edges and the areas that are on the sides of things and I'm putting in swales to retain water and really just in some cases just like it's almost like net and pan um, where you just do a, a pan where you dig out and put a tree and you connect to a ditch to another thing sort of like that and I'm tying everything together so instead of isolated gardens suddenly everything's looking like the whole hillside is terraced swaled and I'm putting down wood chips in the paths so it looks really nice and tied together I'm going around and chopping back weeds I'm planting a lot of Peruvian corn which is really exciting because it's already sprouting and it's only been in a couple days I, I saw one website where a guy had his grow 20 feet, uh, 24 feet tall. Um, I hope that that happens to me, at least something. That that sounds amazing. And uh, I, I put all the waterers, all the sprinklers on automated uh, timers. So it's actually a huge deal for us because I'll no longer be watering. I've got to get a few more sprinklers and another timer. But with four timers, we should be all set. Um, two of them are three port, two of them will be two port, one of them will be one port. And they'll all be automated and run themselves, so I won't worry about that any longer. I'll just monitor how wet things are and then adjust it as we go. Which is a huge deal because I, I feel like I've spent so much time worrying about water and trying to remember to water and setting up alarms and doing all this stuff and trying to organize my life around it. And now I could be at a job or I could be on vacation or something and it'll water itself as long as nothing fails. So things are really, really good. We've got a lot of seed in the ground and a lot of things growing. We have beans that are several feet tall. We have garlic and onions that are really big and they seem like they're going to create seed or at least uh, escapes. I'm really excited to see how far percentage-wise we can get off the grid this year. Next year, when the perennials and the trees that I planted are really going to be start giving us more fruit, 
then I think I'll be able to, you know, get a higher percentage. But this year, I don't know. I mean, it really de- probably depends on the dietary choices we make. I'm going to get a pig, so we're going to render lard again, and I'm not going to burn it this time, so it doesn't taste like burnt bacon. And that's going to be our oil for when we go off grid. And because I'm not going to shake, but I'm not going to shake milk to make butter or cream to make butter. I've done that. I don't, I'm not really a cow milk person. I'm a goat milk person. Um, for those of you who have a newbie in our kindergarten, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All right. Anyway. So that's the farm update. Rock and roll, let's move on. Neil Speckman of twovisionspermaculture.com is from Idaho but has been working in Saudi Arabia for years. Neil's a friend and an amazing permaculture example. He's growing in an area where it's rained twice since he's been there, and it's been years that he's been working there. Currently, things are gaining momentum for Neil's work. Let's hear what Neil's got to say. You're not the typical gardener. You're not doing what everyone else. You're not growing tomatoes in your backyard talking about which tomato, you know, how to make the king tomato, you're on a totally different mission. That's true. That's true. Okay, so what I'm working on is working with settled nomads in the desert south of Mecca in Saudi Arabia to uh, restore their land to productivity so that they can make a living off of it. And at the same time, trying to figure out the larger implications of desert afforestation in this part of the world. Uh, so the question, the question I'm trying to answer for, for my own benefit is, if you get a million new microclimates, at what point does the climate itself start changing? So there's a, on the small scale, it's all about economic development, Um, using flash floods out of desert mountains, catching that water and using that water to establish forest or savanna type ecologies. And then on the larger scale, aside from the economic benefits of that, you get to the ecological impact of massive afforestation where because of how trees manage their hydrology, because of their effect on the small water cycle, uh, because of their effect on um, dew point, on evaporation rates, on uh, the amount of dust in the atmosphere, on the kinds of uh, VOCs in the atmosphere, what we should get after massive afforestation is a dramatic increase in rainfall, as well as an increase in the frequency of rainfall in this in this desert and so what that does is it gives you the the there's the potential to take what is a completely denuded environment a completely desertified environment and establish agricultures that will water themselves through cloud and rain creation do we have an Uh, example 
Do we have an example of a climate analog for Saudi Arabia that isn't denuded? Uh, well, there's different climates here. I mean, in the south, it's much greener as you get closer to Yemen. Uh, and so the, the analog for where I'm at, I'm just within the subtropics. So I've got analogs in Namibia, in Mauritania, in uh, a part of India, in uh, Baja, Mexico, in a little slice of, uh, it's either north, I think it's northern Chile, but the Atacama in Chile actually is analogous in some ways. And then uh, various parts of the central Australia as well are analogous in terms of climate. So we are hyper-arid, kind of low elevation because we're in the foothills of the mountains. We're not more than a few hundred meters above sea level. And uh, averaging, you know, 50 to 70 millimeters of rain per year. So uh, around two inches is what the data says that I get from the country. But it's only rained twice since I've been here. It's amazing. Five years. What did it smell like when it rained? Mm, it smells dusty when it rains. Yeah, of course. Right, it of smells, course. It smells like mud. Well, because it's all simplified, right? There's nothing in the mud. There's no soil smell. No, no, there's no soil at all. Right, and because... We've, um, we've got no carbon in our soil and no organic matter when we started. Literally zero. We had our soil tested. It was... Um, uh, 99% silicates. That's amazing. And you've had fungus. You've had fungus on that. Can you talk to talk to us about that? Yeah, so what... The strategy we had was we started with earthworks to slow down the floods and distribute that water across... Uh, across the floodplain so that it would sink into the ground. And then we could measure how much water we caught. And then that became our water budget until the next time we estimated that it would rain, which we're, we're estimating three years every rainfall because that's how it's happened so far. So when, we, when it rains, we catch the water, we say, okay, this is our water budget. How many trees can we irrigate with this much water? Uh, and then we take water out of a well that's in the exact that's in the same watershed, and so we get a big deposit when it rains, and then we have small withdrawals on a weekly basis. You account for so evaporation too, right? Yeah, the the way to account for evaporation, we didn't do this the first time it rained, but you can you put out a pan of water that's so deep, and you just measure how much you've got in there, and then you see how much of that evaporates while you still have standing water. All right, so that's how you can account for percentages of evaporation. So this is something everyone can do. I mean, people in Washington in the drought, people in California in the drought, this is something everyone can do this year. Oh yeah, it's, it's easy. It's easy, the, as long as you've got a way to measure how much water you've caught. Um, Cause for us, we don't catch all the water, some of it, um, the last time it rained, we got too much water, and so 
we lost some after our last catchment. Not that we lost it because it all slowed down, but not all of it stayed on our site because we don't manage the whole watershed and we don't want to keep all the water that does fall from reaching its, its natural uh, end point, so to speak. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's simple, to be honest. That's the simple part. The design isn't the design of the earthworks, the design of the guild, the way you manage all that stuff is a little more tricky. But in terms of establishing a water budget, that's not that difficult. <laughs> I wish uh, I wish our California government would uh, w- w- would be able to grasp that. <laughs> well, eventually they're going to have to. Indeed. Eventually, we're all going to have to. Absolutely. Um, so, so, so you you found these mushrooms. You, we were talking before. We, we were talking about these mushrooms, and let, let's talk about the, those mushrooms. Because mycelium. Did did any of your workers ever see mushrooms before this? Uh, yeah, in other watersheds. Oh. Where uh, after it rains, they they're known to show up. Okay. Um, I mean they they. What this particular fungus does is it, it sends its spores out and then it waits until the conditions are right and then it, it's kind of like an, an annual, it's kind of like an annual plant except they're just dormant underground um, where, and this is, this is my understanding of them, but I mean when they, when they showed up, my guy, the men that worked with me had a name for it. They knew what it was. Okay. Because I know Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert, the uh, people he was working with that hadn't seen fungus and it really like worried them. They didn't understand it. It was a normal part of an ecosystem. Yeah, but I think those were like agricultural engineer guys who are used to killing everything before they plant it. <laughs> and not nomads, right. Uh, yeah, and I'm working with folks who at least have a history of knowing the land very, very well and being able to read its patterns fairly well. So that, that's, that's what I suspect the difference is there. But I showed a picture of this. Uh, so we planted between four and 5,000 trees. It's amazing. And we've got the water budget to irrigate them for three years. Some of these trees are three years old. Some of them we planted in January. But what we've noticed is that there are lots of little indications that you know, the ecology is starting to establish itself. And that, and the appearance of mushrooms is one of those. Uh, so at PV2, I showed Paul Stamets a picture of the mushrooms we've got, and he knew what species it was. And he said, this shows up when you're undergoing ecological succession. So what that means is, as our trees grow, as we get more organic matter falling off of these trees onto the sand, and as that starts to collect, we're going to get less evaporation, we're going to get cooler temperatures from the shade, slightly more humidity because of the evapotranspiration off of the trees. And so the conditions for that mycelium to expand and to connect with these trees and create that fungal web you want are they're becoming more favorable 
Okay, and then what we need that, my, that mycelium for is to build the soil because what it will do is it will uh, make the different nutrients and elements in our dirt available to plants. So that's kind of the fact that we have that and the fact that mushrooms are showing up is a really good indication to me that we're starting to lay the foundation for a forest or a savanna type of ecology. Um, the other things that have shown up that I have seen are ants, because I had never seen ants on our site until uh, until 10 months ago. And I've, and I've been living on, I mean, I know this site, I've walked all over it hundreds of times, at least. So, and, so what I was doing was I was walking through one of my swales and I saw a piece of dirt that looked like it had a crumb to it. Like it didn't look hard and compacted and sandy. It looked like there was texture in it. So I, I got down and I realized I was looking at an anthill. And these ants are, you know, burrowing into the sand, but they're aerating it. Right? Absolutely. Which is really useful. And, and then they're also decomposing whatever it is they're eating. And that decomposed matter is going into their little caves and helping to get soil going. And the other thing ants do is ants garden fungus. Um, ants are ants are known to harvest fungi and to garden fungi. So that that's really I was really really happy when I saw ants on our side. Um, we've also got lots and lots of birds showing up to live in our trees. We've got 20 new nests, 20 new birds nests this year, um, and lots of bird song now which is really lovely and lots of other insects moths and caterpillars and uh, dung beetles and grasshoppers all these things are starting to show up so it's it's, it's really for me it's all an indication of the ecological aspect of this is working you know, I know that we're within our water budget and that we're putting more water into the aquifer than we're taking out. That's the first thing. The second thing, I know that the ecology is developing and getting and the foundation for a resilient ecology is being laid because all this stuff is showing up that wasn't here before. Um, and so the next the next puzzle is, is the economic aspect of this design actually going to bear out? Right? Right. The water is working, the ecology is working. Now it's okay. Because when we laid this design initially, it wasn't, it's not just greening the desert, it's establishing businesses based on a new ecology. So it's economic development through ecological uh, restoration, I guess is the closest word. So we've got a bunch of plants that I think are going to give us some very high yields and we're starting to see that aspect of it. The other part of that is introducing animals to the site, which I haven't done yet, but in order to get all this organic matter to break down and to biodegrade, we need to introduce at least camels, potentially camels and goats, and potentially some kind of poultry along with that. 
It's just a question of does the water budget fit that stuff as well? And a question of getting the right system in place because we can't let these things free range. Um, and, it's, and in terms of productive area on the site, it's actually quite small. Well, you have to start off at a focus and spread out. Ever, I feel, I feel that until I did that on my site, I wasn't able to get the the vitality in my system that it needed. Yeah. So going back to what you were saying a minute ago <clears throat> about forest or savanna, I wanted to clarify. Um, does that mean that you're letting the the nature decide kind of whether it will end up as a forest or a savanna, or does that mean that you're picking which one and gonna push it towards forest or savanna and then in my mind going back to the climate analog I'm wondering and I'm envisioning what what would what will Saudi Arabia look like when it's completely forested and and what will the weather patterns be like I wish there was a way that we could create um, a program that could just generate that and you just click it and then it just shows you what will happen and so that everyone can click the button for their local area and then get inspired and start doing stuff. You know, I think I think that kind of predictive model would be really, really hard to come up with. But in terms of whether we go forest or savanna, I would prefer to push it towards forest. I'm not sure we can get there. Uh, so you'd settle on savannah. Well, yeah, I mean, as long as it's a productive landscape with a healthy, with, with you know, all the, the water cycle and the mineral cycles functioning, you know, in a, in a healthy way, you know, I'm good. The, it's, I don't care so much about that as long as it is ecologically sound and economically productive okay awesome uh, what we have designed is a and I'm, I'm forgetting the right term for this right now but it's it's an uh, it's essentially an alley cropped system where you have strips of forest interspersed with strips of what I hope to is going to become grazing land uh, the challenge in that is I don't think there's any grasses that will go for three years without rainfall and I don't want to irrigate grass so I'm focusing on trees right now and hoping that on the large scale those trees are going to affect the ecology enough that you can establish something in between these strips of forest that's, that's kind of the experimental model right now and I really think that these forested alley crop systems are emerging as the dominant model for ecological, ecologically sound farms. I'd agree. Everywhere. I totally agree with that. I've seen evidence in at least cold climates where uh, animals do better in an orchard, uh, mixed orchard uh, setting and being pushed through uh, like a a rotational grazing uh, but in a tree system yeah and that I mean that's what uh, Mark Shepard's been doing as far as I understand it I know that's what uh, Grant Schultz and Peter Allen are doing I know that's what the, the rad folks are doing 
So it's Holter, the Holter uh, system at Kremiderhof is based around that. Yeah, he's got a lot. Yeah. So I, I really think that's the dominant model that's emerging. And if we can get that established here, I'd be really happy about it. That's awesome. And so, I, I, the beauty of that system is you can do, you can cover a huge amount of land and tend a huge amount of land and have a really low overhead and have only a few employees or just a husband and wife team that runs it. Yeah, depending on the scale you're working on. And also how well established the, the system is. Yeah, yeah. But I, the other advantages to that is, at least in my climate, it gives me a way to, uh, to manage those edges. Because you've got, you've got so many more edges when you've got strips like this on a, whether you're on a contoured plan or on a key line plan, you've got so much edge effect going on. And so that's going to increase your productivity. But then it also gives you a, a couple different systems where you can manage the animals separately from the, the tree systems while the tree systems are getting established. That's critical. And that, that, that is the key to try to get their, their uh, fertility without having them go too far. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell me um, anything... Anything you can share would be great about the new project that you're working on. I know it's it's a big project and you're just starting out, but if you could share something, that would be awesome. Um, what we're looking at, because uh, what we've been working on up till now has been a demonstration site. It's really been a proof of concept where there wasn't... Uh, there were just a lot of questions of, is this going to work here on this scale without, you know, depending on a lot of trucked in water. And we've proven, and I feel like we've proven the water and ecological aspects of it, and we're working on the economic aspects of it. So it's been good enough that there's a lot of interest in establishing this on a much larger area. And so what we're looking at right now is a, a 15 square kilometer dry valley system. Uh, other people working in arid lands would call it an arroyo. And uh, in Arabic, we call it a wadi. But this is, this, is, this is pretty big for us. It's going to take a lot more manpower to do. It's going to take uh, a few different design uh, techniques, but it's a place where one rainfall gives us enough water to irrigate 15,000 date palms for two years. And we're looking at this site as the economic base for the people that we're working with in this area. So we, we've proven the concept and now it's time to actually build the economy. Wow. So your success has has taken you to the the larger stage. And is this a national yeah. stage? No, I don't think so yet. Okay. Uh, but one thing I'm really going to try to do with this is uh, take some very careful measurements over the next over the coming years and measure in this system what kind of changes we see in the soil profile regarding carbon and organic matter what kind of changes we see uh, in the pH of the soil profile. And then we're also going to be measuring 
for increases in cloud creation above this place. And then with that kind of data that, you know, after this is established, then we'll be able to go and we'll, and we'll be able to make a pretty good argument, in my opinion, for not just the economic aspect of, of foresting these areas, but in terms of national water security, in terms of national food security, I think that we can solve those issues by through widespread afforestation of the west coast of Saudi Arabia. And so this next site is kind of like the phase two of that series, where phase one is our demonstration and we prove the concept on a small scale. Phase two is this next thing where we build an economy, but we also can measure what kinds of the changes it makes to an environment because it's going to be big enough that it will have an effect like that. And then phase three will start. Um, what I'd like to see is major, major afforestation across the entire west coast of the Arabian Peninsula. So are these shoreline forests that we're talking about or further inland? Because I know that there is some research talking about how there's a conveyor belt effect of moisture from the ocean inland if there's forests that extend from the coast. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's, that's one of the aspects of that third phase that we'd have to integrate. Probably what we would have to do is take a much bigger watershed to start out with. And I'm, I'm talking about something that's, you know, a few hundred square miles. That would include, you know, the watershed, because the whole west coast of Saudi Arabia, you've got the Red Sea, and then you've got this strip of, of sand, essentially. And then you have a, a whole row of mountains uh, that runs from Yemen up to Lebanon. And so there, there's a real defined water cycle there from the ocean to the mountains and then everything in the middle and so what i envision that third phase being and and who knows if this will ever happen but what i envision it being is you'd have systems in the mountains systems in the floodplains and systems along the coastline where you'd be installing mangroves along the coast uh, with you know shrimp production and fisheries and all other kinds of things associated with mangroves and then forest in the floodplain or potential you know savanna or forest in the floodplain where you'd be producing all kinds of things uh along the lines of dairy and meat and oils and fruits and forage and then potentially some myrrhs and some incenses and some medicinal extracts and stuff like that and then the mountains you'd, you'd have a different system altogether because you've got a change in elevation you've got a change in in your rainfall that's how i envision that happening where you've got massive ecological change that's being driven by human management and every single one of those systems has a different management process so that you can maintain the ecological health and at the same time create an entirely new economy that doesn't exist right now. And it would put all the people living in the, all the rural poor of the west coast of Saudi Arabia could be put to work in these systems, both in building them and in maintaining them and producing from them. It's amazing. That's just truly amazing. I think I speak for everyone where keep going, 
where we want to say what you're doing is absolutely probably the most important thing that we could I mean it, it, it falls right into John D. Lou's thing about like how this is the great work of our time and you are really doing it and you're doing it on a large scale and you're doing it in a place far from home you are the edge species and the edge effect that you create is inspiring thanks Matt you know it's um, what I really hope what I'd really like to see is for this to put permaculture on the map in the way it hasn't been before. I think we have so much legitimacy and so much to contribute. And in some ways we're holding ourselves back in the way that we talk about it and in the way that we approach, you know, institutions and governments. And, but in a lot of ways we've, we have this system that gives us so much power and gives us such so much insight and if we can bring that to bear here um then hopefully it can you know along with other big projects going on of which there are few um i'm, I'm hoping we can just raise the whole profile of permaculture across the globe um and get people to see that there is that there are other options aside from industrial agriculture that do solve the problems of food and water security. Thank you so much. I, I can't wait to see what this project uh, leads to. I can't wait to see the fruits of your labor. And I, you know, I can't wait to see your face when you start working in an easy climate. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that one day. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're going to be really good. Go. Who knows where it's going to go, but I I hope it, it I hope we can pull off what I'm dreaming of. I'm dreaming pretty big. I think we have to. We're at this juncture where if we don't jump, we're going to get hit by a train. Um and that that train is a a holistic mess. Um and the only holistic science that we have is permaculture and and I think what you're doing by addressing the, the social, the economic, the agricultural, and the environmental all at once, um, and, and doing it, you know, in a way that the government approves so that, it, I mean, you're touching all, all the sides, all the edges in a beneficial way and having a beneficial exchange. And I think that's the only way we can move forward from here because I feel like we've reached a lot of dead ends and um, we tend to abandon things and that's why we have towns all over America that are just abandoned and empty. I toured the U.S. for many years before the, uh, the recession began and there's towns all over America, there's even little cities that are just empty. I mean, outside Cleveland, there are townhouses for miles that are boarded up that I drove past. Yeah. The six months before you know the 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 recession officially you know began, and I knew something was wrong. We all know something's wrong, and we go outside and everyone's worried about the weather. We all know something's wrong, but no one knows what to do. And and then when we we talk permaculture to people, a lot of people don't get it because they don't see examples. There's not it's not being promoted. But the only way that we're really going to have those examples, the only way we're going to have something to promote is if we put something large scale in the most extreme climate. And the only examples I know of those sorts of things are you and Jeff Long. 
Yeah, and there there are a few more popping up, but they're very small right now. Um, some in Yemen and some in uh, East Africa and some in West Africa. Is that is that Ramos? Is that Ramos doing um, that? No, Ramos isn't running any projects that I know. Oh, okay. of. He's doing right. a lot of teaching. Right, right. I knew he was but, a teacher. Um, I think on the on the homestead scale, there's a lot of stuff. All right, well, thank uh, yeah. you so much, Neil, for coming to Permaculture tonight and sharing with us the amazing news and updates. And I would really appreciate if you came back sometime and shared more with us. I'd love to, Matt. Thanks much. It's been a pleasure. All right, thanks, Neil. You bet. Bye-bye. Ray Hodgson hails from Naugatuck River Valley in southwestern Connecticut. She studied natural resource management and engineering at the University of Connecticut's College of Agriculture and Natural Resources and took her design certification course online with Jeff Lawn, as did I. Her website is hodgsonbiologic.com. to Jeff's class together yes and for me it was kind of this brand new introduction because I had just started reading Bill's book a few months prior and had gotten through most of it and was slowing down as it got more detailed near the end of it and right. and so for me it was this big connective experience but from what we're talking about it sounds like you were totally like already there and it was like a finishing up maybe a polishing process for you i i think it it was a refining uh process i when i was considering that we were going to talk today i remembered that when i was about nine years old a friend and i for fun used to design what one could consider permaculture villages wow so, so we were in my frame of mind going way back. Wow. And you were saying you, you found permaculture really early on when it was just kind of being coined out there. Yes. Yeah. yeah I don't remember a specific event. I, I remember coming across, um, it might have been an article that Mollison had written or, or Holmgren. Um, and um, I started a, uh, doing a little research i picked up the the permaculture uh, the introduction to permaculture book first and this was over a decade ago uh and uh meanwhile so so permaculture didn't hit, hit me as the thing i needed to do or you know take a class in it and yet back in the 80s i left my career and went back to school to get a degree in natural resources management and engineering because I felt wow. no one was minding the store with our natural resources. Wow. You know, that's funny. I just talked to yesterday, I just did an interview with a UC Berkeley researcher who's an, an environmental engineer. Sounds pretty similar. This was a combination of an, it's, it actually was through the, uh, the ag school mm -hmm. and 
it was also um, in combination with engineering classes. So I took a combination mm -hmm. of uh, ecology, biology, agriculture, um, uh, forest management, water management, and a few engineering type courses. That's amazing. So essentially, you were you were doing the academia side of permaculture before it even kind of hit. I think so. I think that that was where I wanted to to go with it. Wow. Yeah. So since the course, what have you what have you been working on? Well, um, I have rethought that the 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 exercise the um, the the design exercise that we did helped me look with new eyes at what I've been doing here. I started a uh, small forest uh, garden in, so it's still in its infancy. And I've, I've had a few other things, you know, going on. Um, You're pretty far ahead. I think, <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> many of us, many of us are still on like year two or three. I, I think there's, I mean, a lot of the people that are even starting businesses around permaculture were scaling up. And so they did small backyard things and then now they're doing farms. And so they're like a year or two in their, into their farm. So I think you're, you're right there. Well, I've, I've been having a great time. And, and since the, um, since the PDC class, I've done, uh, a few informal designs. I, I, do, I, I do the, um, the kinds of designs where you, you just have a nice clean white sheet of paper and a Sharpie and you say, okay, this needs to go here and this needs, and so you get that, what, um, what Jeff called the main frame. Right. The zones. Right. So I've been doing some main frame designs for friends That's awesome. uh, as well as reviewing my own. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. You start doing work on other people's property and you're like, whoa, I didn't think it would work that way. And it's already naturally there. And you go back to your place and you're like, so I could just do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been caring for my little flock of ducks, Ooh. and Bill Mollison is responsible for me having ducks because of his misquote, you don't have a slug problem, you have a duck deficiency. Yeah. I took that to heart, and I have a flock of runners and buffs, and it is difficult to find a slug at our place now. Wow, in Connecticut, you know, it has those wet, wet seasons, uh -huh. and they can extend. I remember one year, um, they couldn't even get corn because it just kept raining and it molded. That's right. Yeah, it, it can be that wet here. Um, and, uh, duck weather. So, yeah, it's fine weather for ducks. They really do like it. Um, and so I, I take that I have a very secure area because ducks are... Um, a favorite meal of many animals. And so I have like little Fort Knox, but we go for walks around the place. So I supervise them and I, I walk my little duck flock uh, through our little woods and through the forest garden and around the, the yard and they mop up slugs and, and a lot of other things. So. That's awesome. I love it. So what are your plans for the future? going to continue uh, to refine what I'm doing here because the the greatest aha that I had from the permaculture design course was 
that while observation is very important and re- responding to what's going on in the landscape is important, design, uh, real thoughtful design uh, is, is something that I was only scratching the surface of initially. And so now I'm revisiting that and, and getting um, and just refining the design. And, and so I, I am getting some feedback now from the forest garden and I see, okay, I, I need to help it out. You know, it's, it's, it's getting a little brambly. And part yeah. of that has to do with, we had a serious illness in the family. 2011 was an interesting year. So let me just say, we've had some serious illness in the family a uh, time or two since I started the forest garden. Uh, and some interesting weather that has certain things at certain times of the year. And so now I'm just trying to catch up with um, some pruning some things and, and pulling out some um brambles that have tried to move in right good brambles or bad brambles Hmm? good brambles or bad brambles i in my mind frankly there are no bad brambles yeah totally there aren't however i have a flock of ducks who will get cuts on their feet if i have them in the forest garden and there are a bunch of brambles yeah so i'm balancing the needs of two elements right 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 I have brambly areas mm-hmm. by design, right, right. But there are just some places that the I it would be better for the brambles to be pulled out. And so we have all kinds of wild. Um, we have wild blackberries. I've I've brought in some domesticated uh, blackberries. We have um, dewberries and all kinds of Beautiful. brambles. Yeah, love it. Yeah, bees love it. The birds love it. So, do you have any projects coming up that that you're excited about? I I have a friend who bought an old uh, small old farm, and it has not received much attention um, for a number of years. And he's asked me to work with him on a design, and I'm very much looking forward to that because the land itself uh, has all kinds of um, microclimates it's adjacent to a wetland it's got a, a hillside that's very stony um, just it, it's got another area where there's quite a bit of subsurface water wow. um, I'm thinking Chinampas yeah <laughs> Chinampas however we want in to say Connecticut that. why not Wow, that's good. I mean, of course you can do it in Connecticut, but I'm just saying Chinampas in Connecticut that's gonna be something amazing to touch base well, on. Yeah, I, I, I hope he'll go for the idea. I've, I've been floating the idea, and, and part of it is like, uh, because of their location, there are a lot of mosquitoes in the backyard um, in the evening, especially. And they do have bats there mm-hmm. uh, that I take up in an old barn, and I'm, I'm trying to work with him on how to protect the bats and... You know, so it's 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 that again that balancing between elements in the landscape. Yeah, uh, he he'd like his barn back. Um, you could do back and then boxes. He's not, he's not in a hurry to evict them, so we're yes. trying to sort something out there. You could probably do a bat box, and there might be there might be some way to attract them to it. Yeah, yeah. So it's just I'm I'm thinking a lot about the bats, and but another thing I think we could do about the mosquitoes is. If we, we had the chinampas, um, 
we should be able to get some, maybe some minnows or, or some other fish that would be appropriate uh, to eat the, uh, the mosquito larvae. Yeah. And you could set up an, a, it basically is an attraction site and then you just harvest it all and stop the cycle. Right. As, as well as plantings of lemon balm and other uh, plants that are supposed to discourage mosquitoes. But I, I find that things that eat the larvae do pretty well. I put uh, fish in my rain barrels. Um, rosy red minnows do a great job. My, our neighbor, uh, our neighbor puts goldfish into her uh, horse trough. Yep. <laughs> well, think maybe you could come back again and give us an update on that big project you're going to do. Sure, sure, be glad to. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming. With over 22,000 subscribers to her online newsletter, Lori Neverman is an online homesteading force. Her Common Sense Homesteading blog is a classic that many new homesteading websites either emulate or outright steal from. She's that good. And best of all, she's getting into permaculture. Without any further ado, let's hear from Lori. Yeah, such as the internet, yeah, when you're not on the, the main grid, right? Is there a way to do that off-grid? Is there like a homesteader way to do internet when there is no internet? Uh, the closest thing that we have right now, well, we do have a hard line to the house, which is not the greatest, but it's more stable. And we also have, it's a radio, what they call... Um, like radio wave DSL, which that's the one that is faster, but it drops all the time. And then you can do satellite internet, but that's crazy expensive and generally slower yet. So, because we've checked into all of it and yeah, hmm. is what it is. We just need a Nikola Tesla for the internet, right? Figure out how yeah. to just make it Wi-Fi everywhere. That doesn't hurt people, though. <laughs> That's yeah. the key, right? You know, fry everyone's hearts. So, that be... yeah, that would be yeah. cool, right? So, you've been making a lot of changes. You are a you are a persona. You are a force. I have been watching your work and learning from you for for years on your blog online, and now you you found permaculture, and so. Can you tell us how you found out about permaculture and what what it's brought to to you? Because you're already so accomplished that um, you would probably be able to articulate of the value at your level of what per, uh, permaculture did for you. Well, I'd heard about it some time ago, but I hadn't looked into it seriously because we were kind of stuck in limbo with my husband's job boss. Like, well, that'd be six years ago, 
and he was stuck working in another like two hours away for five years straight so we didn't know if we were going to stay if we're going to go and so i'd heard about it but i hadn't looked into it seriously because we we didn't want to invest any more major effort in the place if we were going to have to leave it absolutely so it was one of those things it's like yeah it had been on my radar off and on but it's like okay i you know just not looking any deeper into that and then i started getting into wild plants more or weeds as you know because i have the weekly weeder series but um, i love that series and yeah but (laughs) you know and 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 then i started looking well um was i read restoration agriculture which i thought was just great which of course is permaculture agriculture and you know that scale and he one of the things that struck me most in that book is the most memorable part to me at least where he was like we really need to stop growing things that don't want to grow and killing things that do want to grow and i'm like well yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like you know we spend so much time and effort eradicating all the stuff that just wants to live and so that was like okay this is it and then when my husband finally got a job back in the area about a year ago this time and we finally got to the point where it's like okay now we know we get to stay mm-hmm. so this is time to make the big investment so i started researching more and it's just kind of come full circle it's like everything was pointing there pointing there pointing there and now it's time so that's, that's awesome that's awesome so tell us what what changes you've made because you you already had an extensive setup well the biggest thing um is the swales which you know i've been posting online pictures of all those but we have this south-facing hillside that i thought you know for years i've been wanting to do more with this hillside because it would seem to be a great growing area it's kind of sheltered from the by the house it's got a full south-facing exposure and we tried growing grapes on there there's a vineyard just five yards or five yards five minutes down the road like five miles from us yeah and this is supposed to be a decent grape grape country it's because it's they the vineyard's called parallel 44 because we're on the 44 parallel which mm-hmm. is you know where the great vineyards are across the globe type of thing yada yada and i'm like but we should be able to grow stuff there but the problem was with our setup it's close but it's not quite right. So there's north winds that come from that direction where I'm pointing. You can see me on video, but nobody else can. (laughs) And they sweep over our driveway past the house and they scour that hillside and they just suck all the moisture out of it. And in the winter, they just desiccate the grapes, even though we've tried to wrap them and protect them. It's just, it's brutal. So that's one thing out here. It's like you think Wisconsin's like nice, mellow, you know, cold, but mellow. It's like no, we're in the one of the windiest spots in Wisconsin, and um, yeah, it just really you can tell it on that hillside in particular. And one of the first things we did when we moved out here is we planted tree lines to the north and the south with um, evergreen trees, but of course those will take years to mature. So took the problem hillside and put in four swales staggered on the hillside to catch what moisture is there and dry it, you know, little grapes so they don't get desiccated quite so easily. And now we're in the course 
planting a whole ton of different shrubs of different heights, sizes, um, nitrogen fixers, soil builders of different means, and plus edible. Basically, the whole hillside is being care formed into an edible food forest. So that's the that big project awesome. here. That is awesome. That's huge. And and so you're making this transition, you're being open about it, you're sharing about it, and you're reaching a huge audience that has stuck with you for, I mean, how many years have you been doing Common Sense Homesteading? Well, I started in 2009, but that was back at the blogger site, and, you know, that was kind of like my two friends, you know, who would look at posts and comment. And so I moved to... Um, the current site in 2012 and then since then it's grown quite a bit so um so yeah really technically over six years but more formally and like making sure to have regular postings for the last three years so that's awesome it's grown there's like half a million people who visit each each month so that's huge you're making a huge difference in so many people's lives yeah and so I, I think I heard a rumor that you're working on a book. Is this true? Yes. No. Maybe. Okay. All right. <laughs> I okay. Wanted to have, I did have an arrangement tentatively in place with a publisher, but I really felt that they were pushing me the wrong direction and, and stepping back and saying, you know, like when I do this I want to do it the way it's meant in my voice not as opposed to somebody else who thinks the way it should be um, there will be no yuppies and galoshes on the cover of my book yes. and <laughs> sorry nothing against yuppies and galoshes but that's not us so you know um, so plan of action and plan of attack for this year is to do some smaller ebooks and you know get my name out there to the Amazon audience and and take a ton of pictures this season so that I can compile it all over the course of winter and well and keep pecking away at the book, the big book, and get it all done properly and and uh, I'm trying to work on it here and there in between like the crazy planting schedule and uh, that's so, awesome yeah, trying to document the whole progress and. That's 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 exactly what Darren Doherty's doing right now with the Agrarian's Handbook. He's releasing it chapter by chapter. I think he's releasing it for five dollars a chapter, and he's just building it as he goes, and he's listening to feedback and everything. I think the the traditional model infected the way. I mean, especially for us because we grew up in this world where you know you didn't have a cell phone. You couldn't Google things. You whatever happened was what you knew. And what your parents said and your friends said. there were, and, and what the TV said. There was no, like, third sort. You know what I mean? There was nothing that you had to really go off of. And so now we've got all these options. Um, yeah, and you're gonna be, it's going to be wonderful to have that option out there to, to learn from you and to see your experience because you are coming from a climate that a lot of people share and a lot of people want to move to and grow in. I know a lot of people looking at, at, at. I don't know. I think more people. Well, I think more like, people want to move to California with you, where it's warmer. Oh, I think more people are fleeing California um, than moving in, actually, because of the heat and the drought. Um, well, the drought now, yeah. Yeah, everyone's. All the farmers are. Um, 
Well, what's going on is the farmers are cutting down their trees, they're ripping their trees out, they're burning them in these 30, 40 foot high mounds, and they're selling the land to developers. It's really, really scary because you just drive down and you just see like wasteland. And maybe that's like what it was and there were just trees in that wasteland, right? Because the way we do agriculture, but it is disturbing to see that no one no one's moving in to take over or to flip it into permaculture. It's just being mowed over and turned into concrete. And I don't know where the water's gonna come for all those developments and all the schools they're building, but they're building them. And everyone's going ahead um, as planned, as if there's going to be this tomorrow. And that's why I find such value in places online like your blog. And I, and I know we're gonna find tons of value in your book. And I hope to have you back when uh, when the first ebook comes out so you can promote it and, and tell us all about it. What uh, can you tell us your uh, your exact URL? Uh, CommonSenseHome.com. All run together. No dashes, no hyphens, no other funky stuff. Awesome. Well, that's perfect. Thank you so much, Lori, for coming and chatting with us. All right. Have a good. You too. Have a good day. Okay. Good night. Well, that's our show tonight. Thank you to all our guests and listeners for making this possible. I hope you learned something new and enjoyed it. I certainly did. Tune in next time for more with Permaculture Tonight. <laughs>